0: This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. President Biden is visiting Surfside, where search and rescue teams continue the painstaking task of searching the rubble of the partially collapsed Champlain Towers South Condominium Building. The list of confirmed dead is growing, and so it calls for answers as to how the building could have collapsed. Emergency personnel from across the state have converged on Surfside to pitch in on the huge rescue and recovery effort, and lawmakers from across the aisles have also united to help support that effort. It's a rare moment of bipartisanship in these politically polarized times, but just how long can it last? I asked our political commentators Dick Batchelor and Frank Torres about this and other headlines, including a swath of bills signed and vetoed by Governor Ron DeSantis and the early signs of the 2024 presidential campaign. I'm joined by Republican political analyst Frank Torres. Frank, nice to have you back. Great to be here. also joined by Democratic political analyst Dick Batchelor. Dick, thank you as well. Thank you. Well, let's talk a little bit about what's happening in Surfside, uh, obviously a tragedy that has really shaken the state to its core um, over the last week. And we've seen, I guess a moment of bipartisanship i guess you could say which is oftentimes what you see in the aftermath of these tragedies uh we heard from senator marco rubio thanking president biden for the support he's offered and uh, the uh, you know early after the after the building collapse last week we have president biden making a visit to surfside as well frank torres what's your kind of early analysis of the political response to the surfside building collapse well, I think it's a return
1: to, of decency to some sorts. I mean, before, over the last couple of years, any credit given to the uh, to the other side of the aisle, uh, unfortunately, even during the the scope of disasters, has kind of been been frowned upon, or you know, or or left left the the kind person out open for attack, and we're still seeing that in, in the worst channels of the social media. Networks that we're seeing with in the, in the toxic to- comment section and all of those things, mm-hmm. but it's important that especially during these tragedies that you know these lawmakers call time out and make sure people are okay and that they're getting the help they needed before they go back to their usual political sparring. So I think it's a, uh, I think it's a sign of hope and uh, hopefully a, a return to just normal civility in politics.
0: Dick Bachelor, what's your assessment
2: politically? Frank is right. It's one of those issues that you. It would be hard to politicize under, under any circumstances, need not be under any circumstances. So it's good to see a bipartisan approach with the governor there on site a great deal of time and the uh, President Biden uh, coming to visit himself. So I, I think it's good. And he also FEMA's uh, there on the grounds. And I met with the district administrator for the Department of Children and Families uh, this week in mm-hmm. Miami. And they are to the point they had to deploy grief counselors, mental health counselors, and any kind of services they can provide, whether it was housing, food, whatever. So, very, very emotional toll is taken on those people around there. So, thank God this is the one thing that has should be, and is a political.
0: Frank Torres, um, a catastrophe like this obviously has you know the ripple spread out pretty far and wide. You know it's it's a really long, painstaking process of of rescue and recovery. Um, And so uh, sort of tricky to to weigh that up against the fact that people are asking questions, obviously, and started asking those questions early after the tragedy, pretty much as soon as it happened. Like, how could this happen? Uh, What are you seeing there in the kind of political response? And what do you think the kind of ripples could be as people try to find answers for this? Well, I think we've gotten to the examination stage where
1: we're starting to find out some information uh, about uh, Champlain Towers, the the Surfside condos, um, what conditions were in, what regulations helped, what regulations didn't help, especially in this case. And naturally, citizens want to start asking questions. And naturally, if they happen to be uh, we're in Florida, if somebody's in a Surfside condominium arrangement, if they're living there, Mm -hmm. if they're in any sort of uh, sort of condominium condominium um, you know, habitat or housing—they're going to be at wondering if they're secure and if they're safe. So it's very natural for people to review what's going on um, to avoid these tragedies from happening further and to bring it back here to Orlando. We've just crossed the five-year anniversary of Pulse. Mm-hmm. A couple of weeks after Pulse, or even to this day, we still question. What could have been done differently? Did we react properly? Did we react in a timely manner? Uh, and it's just a natural human instinct to start immediately asking questions um and to ensure that our leaders are leading the right way and if the rules are in place to keep people safe mm-hmm. so I think you know we, we've gotten to that stage. it might seem a little early at times, but at the same time, there are conversations that just have to happen.
2: I want to go back to something Frank was alluding to also, and that is. You know, the, the families, they're outside the site, and they've lost love. with you think about 150-plus missing? If you calculate the number of family members, mm-hmm. brothers and sisters, grandparents, and then family members, you know thousands and thousands of people are going to be at least tertiarily impacted by that loss of that human being, that loved one. So mm-hmm. you've got a lot of emotional investment those people want to know what went wrong. Why did this happen? It was so unusual. Why did it happen and to frank 's point, you know they they would already started talking to a guy who did the engineering study, talking to the head of home the homeowner association, the condo association they were doing a uh, trying to do an assessment of fifty million dollars to make repairs, which ergo means there was something that needed to be repaired. Mm-hmm. It was that part of it? It was a failure of the homeowner association or the construction company. Uh, I mean, then the public policy. You know, remember after Hurricane Andrew, Florida had a Southern Building Code, but now we have a Florida Building Code, which is much mm-hmm. more stringent than any state. And is that going to is that going to impact us? Would the building codes be changed so this does not happen again? It's it's only happened one time. I can't remember it ever happening before, but. Public policy, you've got to respond from a public policy domain at the appropriate time to say, we found out what the cause is, we found out the solution, and we're going to employ those new solutions to be sure it never happens again. Is that any solace to those who lost loved ones? Probably not, but at least it's some overture that something's trying to be done so it
0: won't happen again. Well, let's um, turn... Our attention, if we could, to Governor DeSantis has been busy signing bills into law. He's also been vetoing some bills as well. Let's talk about Gale's Law for a moment. This would help rape survivors track evidence that could lead to their attackers' arrests. Uh, Frank Torres, what do we know about this, the background to this, and, and what impact it could have uh, going forward? Well, the state has done poorly
1: uh, in recent years keeping track of these kits, and um, for, for obvious alarming reasons, something had to be done. And uh, I believe – some kudos to a local lawmaker, Linda Stewart, who I believe played a key role uh, in this legislation as well, um, to get this data and, uh, and to get this process off and going um, – in a way that will allow the, the victims of these terrible crimes to to have more transparency over what's going on. So um, to me, I think it's one of those pieces of legislation that unfortunately, we had to find out the, the wrong way, um, that some changes have to be made, but we've made the repairs and hopefully um, we can give people a little bit more peace moving forward.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, staying with law enforcement or, or um, the prosecution of crimes, uh, a bill that Governor DeSantis vetoed it would have expanded a youth's ability to expunge their arrest record, so that would mean they would uh, they would be able to remove those crimes from their record. That that uh, bill was um, shot down by Governor DeSantis. Frank, Torres, some consternation, of course, from the the folks who who worked hard to to get this bill pushed through.
1: Well, you know, and it's kind of a puzzler too. Um, we've seen initiatives in the municipalities that try not to hold. Um, our youth accountable for the rest of their lives for a mistake they may have made when they were younger, mm-hmm. um, and I think as far as that process goes, this is kind of a uh, a step back. Um, and it, I think if we look at the the politics behind it, I think it's another chip or another brick in the twenty twenty four column for for Ron DeSantis, mm-hmm. and I think he wants to continue to be the tough on crime governor. And he's he's certainly being tough. And um, as far as you know, this particular legislation, maybe he was looking at you know maybe the more the tougher angles of the you know uh, of what could happen with you know having those those offenses removed. But definitely, uh, it's definitely been an unpopular
2: decision from what I've seen so
0: far. Dick Bashwell, your assessment?
2: Well, I think first of all, expungement I think is a good policy, particularly for crimes that are you know, minimal crimes. Let me give an example. I talked to somebody this week trying to do foster placement placement for a foster child. They were trying to place the family could not support this child. They wanted to put the child with the aunt, but the aunt had an arrest years ago for marijuana use, not trafficking just marijuana use. She was caught with a joint. So you're telling me the law is such that you cannot place this child who needs a parental guidance? with the aunt who's passed all background checks to be an appropriate uh, person to take care of the child because some 20 years ago she got caught with a joint. Mm-hmm. So expungement has its purposes. Now, I think there's a little political undertow here, and I could be wrong, but remember the Desmond Mead case. <laughs> mm-hmm. Desmond Meade, uh, he's been trying to get his uh, sentence commuted or so, because she's now you know, finished law school, et cetera. He levered the effort on constitutional amendment number four, if I think it was number four, Uh, but anyway, about sentencing. Uh, So I think there might be a little political undertow that not to make it any easier for Desmond Mead or people his ilk uh, to be pardoned or have their records expunged. Just Mm -hmm. saying, subtle could be there. I could be wrong.
0: If you're just joining me, my guess. Political analysts Dick Batchel and Frank Torres. We're taking a look at what's making headlines in politics in Florida at this moment. uh, Both of you alluded to the idea that some of these bills being signed or vetoed by Governor Sanders, maybe I think your phrase, uh, Frank Torres, was putting some bricks in the wall of a potential 2024 campaign. Well, let's talk about that because uh, there's already chatter, of course, about what's happening or what may be happening with the uh, Republican primary crowded field. There's also the specter of former President Donald Trump looming over over everything. Uh, How do you see this shaking out at this early stage, Frank Torres?
1: Yeah, well, I see it definitely shaking out. And I know if some of our listeners are home or anything like me, they're like, you know, don't show me 2024 until we get past 2022. Mm-hmm. But we can't ignore, exactly, we can't ignore that the legislation that is being enacted now, being signed now, and having an effect in our lives now is an investment in. A primary that takes place, uh, you know, in, in, in a couple of years. And it's making this perpetual election cycle not even so much a matter of what's happening in the immediately – in the, the, the election to the immediate future, but elections afterwards. And, you know, you just got to look at Ron DeSantis's actions recently. Uh, we have the, the immigration uh, push towards the border, sending local resources to that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of social conservative issues that he's been championing and – even the tone of his administration, what we're seeing from you know some of uh, his people online, very uh, rebellious, very cavalier and insensitive with uh, with, with with political issues. It, it feels like somebody's running a primary already. And if you've got if you're Ron DeSantis who has this traction within his party to be Joe Biden's next potential challenger, then um, I, I think you're going to continue to see him
0: running with that. Dick Batchelor, I feel like politicians are always on, right? I mean, you're they're, they're always in campaign mode, whether it's an official sure. campaign or not. But is is that kind of just more obvious now? Like, what was it like when, when you were running for office? Was, it, was there the sense that you were always looking to your next campaign, or is there the sense that you could take a pause between campaigns?
2: Any politician who says that he or she has put a pause on the campaign mode after they're reelected is, um, at best, flirting with the truth. How is that for being diplomatic, right? <laughs> flirting, with Always, okay. uh, flirting with the truth, Flirting with that's, the truth. That's as diplomatic as I can be about it. They're lying. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, the, the, the governor of the Senate is running for president. Look at his agenda. You know, first of all, he sends, uh, what, 20 people uh, to the border for law enforcement on a $2,500 on oh, 25-foot-a-mile border, uh, uh reinforcing his law and order and build the wall kind of mantra that he used when the primary gets adam putnam right uh, secondly he he's now uh, passed an anti-right legislation but we've never had a right in the state of florida um, he's passing a policy where you can't teach a critical race theory which is actually not taught in florida so he has these solutions searching for a problem to solve, but this all about campaign. I had said tug-of-cheek to the Orlando Sentinel that if he's going to send 20 law enforcement officers to help guard the border, I think we need to activate the Air National Guard to intercept these Canadian geese that are about to violate our airspace, <laughs> uh, because that, that's a that's an issue, too. It's just as important in whether or not the Key West is going to secede from the state of Florida, become the concrete Republic, and Jimmy Buffett's going to be governor, which could could be very popular. But anyway, tongue-in-cheek, but obviously everything he does now is <laughs> is moving towards a campaign for president. The real quick question is going to be, if he can, if he outshines Donald Trump at some point in time, when Donald Trump said, I would I would consider him as a running mate, which was kind of a backhanded compliment, um, not endorse him for president, but if Trump looks like he's going to run, DeSantis is picking up his team, when will... Trump throw DeSantis under the bus, so that's what he's got to
0: wager. But it's all political for sure. Mm-hmm. Frank, am I hearing you say that you would vote for Jimmy Buffett if his name was on the ballot for governor?
1: I'd certainly hear what he has to say. I mean, his parties are probably going to be the best. Mm-hmm. But uh, to, to tack onto what Dick Bachelor is saying, you wonder when you know you try not to outshine the boss. And Ron DeSantis is. You know, he beat Donald Trump in, in a straw poll, uh, you know, that, that wasn't yeah. even in Florida, you know, a, a couple of weeks back. And he's making those those laps on Fox News pretty regularly. If Donald Trump still wants to run – Either somebody's going to have to tell, make a phone call and tell DeSantis to calm down, or we're going to see some uh, we're going to see him come out against the governor in, in a way that uh, might surprise everybody involved. Mm-hmm. So er, there's mm-hmm. a nuance here that I'm not sure anybody's you know really seeing or anybody really cares about right now, but it could make for some uh, some very
0: serious drama moving down the road. Uh, thinking too yeah. about you know some of these some of these pieces of the legislation may uh, be more in tune with thinking about what Governor DeSantis has in mind for his next campaign for sure but there's also some practical implications right there's there's lawsuits already a uh, uh, civil rights group is suing Florida over the ban on the participation of transgender girls in in college and school sports uh, so Dick Batchelor, um what do you make of that I mean obviously some of these some of these laws are being challenged in court already
2: yeah, it's, it's obviously playing to the base, and this, these are all red, what I call red meat issues to the base and if, uh, the, all that I mentioned, aforementioned. Uh, but there's another lawsuit brought by well, the African-American Christian clergy and other groups on the voter suppression legislation that passed. Here's another one to watch, reapportionment. I mean, obviously the reapportionment. of Republicans, we only picked up one seat on the census count. We thought we had two. We picked up one congressional seat. Mm -hmm. And what's going to happen in central Florida is you'll see a concerted effort by the Republicans to draw the – redraw the congressional district line to to take Val Deming's district and push it into Stephanie Murphy and push Stephanie Murphy down – uh, up to Seminole County to so make it more competitive for her or either person to win. So uh, all of this is about the next election, and for the governor and for the president, it's all about voter suppression. It's all about reapportionment. They will take advantage of that. Notwithstanding the constitutional amendments should restrict it on compactness and t- cont- contiguousness, but uh, all of this, it is all a place where you got 26 states across the nation, filing legislation on voter suppression. It is all coordinated. It's all to tap down, to turn out of the Democratic vote. All of it's related. It's very um, thematic. The optics are there. I think he's playing his hand brilliantly to, to solidify his base as far as the Senate's concerned. So it's all predictable, but it's and it's all going to come to pass. It ain't going to be pretty. Hmm.
0: Uh. That sort of, um, I guess, is an interesting place to end the conversation. Frank Troyes, we were talking at the start of the conversation about a return to kind of uh, civility in politics, but looking ahead to 2024 sounds like it's going to be anything but. It,
1: it is, but, you know, I, I think that, what's it called, it's important that for certainly for the events down the surf side that everybody stays together and any unity um, that we're we're observing right down there uh, during these tough times is important. But after that, yeah, shortly it'll, it'll get back to business as usual.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, Frank Torres is a Republican political analyst. Thanks so much, Frank. Nice to see you back again. Always great to be here. And Dick Batchelor, Democratic political analyst. Dick, great to hear from you as well.
2: And thank you very much.
0: Up next, the LGBT Plus Center in Orlando partners with translation and interpretation services company CCI Group. We'll hear how the center is reaching out to an increasingly diverse community. That's when Intersection returns. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. The LGBT Centre in Orlando has partnered with translation and interpretation services company CCI Group, which says it's donating services to provide language equity for the centre. Joel Junior Morales with the centre says offering translation for services like mental health counselling and immigration will allow them to reach more people who come to the centre for help. I talked with Morales and CCI's Indy Vega about Orlando's changing demographics and the efforts to serve an increasingly diverse community. Well, I'm joined by Joel Morales. He is the Director of Operations at the Centre and the Program Director at the Orlando United Assistance Centre. Joel, thanks so much for being here.
4: Thank you for having me.
0: We're also joined by Indy Vega. She's the President of CCI Group Indy. Thanks as well.
5: Thank you for having me.
0: Joel, I want to start with you, you've, through this partnership with CCI Group, you are expanding basically the the access to your services, right, in terms of who can access them and, you know, the the languages that you're able to offer services and just explain
4: how this is going to work. Yeah, that is correct. So the LGBT plus center, we've been operating since 1978, we're one of the longest running LGBT centers nationwide. And we're open about seven days a week providing crucial services like HIV testing, hepatitis C testing, STI, mental health. And recently we absorbed the Orlando United Assistance Center program, which helps those impacted by the post-tragedy. And we also do housing assistance. And we know that in Central Florida, a lot of people are moving into our community that speaks multiple languages. Our community is very diverse. And a lot of times people may not access the services that are intended for them because we may not speak their language or may not have the resource to provide that um, that service to them. We have a couple staff people that are that speaks Spanish, but maybe we don't have anyone who speaks Portuguese or Vietnamese or Haitian Creole, so a lot of these languages in a lot of these communities are not being served adequately as we want them to be. Mm
5: -hmm. As Joel said, sometimes these topics are difficult for people to talk about and through our over the phone interpretation service, uh, it brings also that extra layer of confidentiality between the staff member of the center and the client that's coming forward, uh, mm-hmm. there's not going to be an extra, a third person in the room. This is uh, the is basically we're providing the interpretation over the phone, so they they're going to be able to open up a little bit more. There's not a another person there, and they're not going to be feel they're not going to feel judged or observed in any way. So we uh-huh. feel that this is going to be Uh, really positive for for people that come to the center.
0: So just talk me through it, like the kind of logistics of it. Say um, you have somebody who needs some help. Uh, English is not their first language. They call in. So so what's the sort of process like, if that makes sense?
5: Yeah, so basically if, uh, let's say someone shows up and um, they establish that this person speaks Portuguese and there's nobody... That can assist them then uh, the center has their own dedicated line and they call this number and they just need to dial they already have their codes for each language, they just need to press one for Spanish, two for Portuguese and the interpreter comes on the line and they get the name of the person they're talking to and they start the interpretation the whole process uh, between the time that uh, the staff member calls to the moment that the interpreter starts enabling communication is less than a minute. It shouldn't mm-hmm. take longer than that.
0: If you're just joining me, my guest, uh, Joel Morales, with the uh, LGBT Plus Center in Orlando and Indy Vega with CCI Group, we're talking about translation services um, for people who call into the center for help. So, Joel, have you been able to give this service a test drive
4: so far oh yeah we have um we started using it immediately actually there was it's it's funny once we got the number established we had a family come in a portuguese family come in looking for services and we were able to like help them without having to scramble and, and like look for someone to speak that language so we started using it immediately so that was super exciting and so we're going to, and then once that happens, right? The thing about um, any type of resource or any type of organization, a lot of times when you start building that trust within the organization, then that starts communicating out to like other people within those communities. So now that family could go ahead and let their families or friends know, hey, the center is providing translation services. So feel f- feel free to go over there because they're going to take care of you no matter what time you come to the center. So that right there is like, phenomenal for me because you know working in years a nonprofit, this always been a barrier across the board so just to have this now and our disposal uh with cci group it's gonna take us to a next level and um, and we're seeing like right central florida grow and expanding and so many different people coming here we want to make sure that we are representing diversity and a in an important way in a very inclusive way
0: did you see a surge in demand for the services that you are providing around the the five year mark of the Pulse tragedy, Joel.
4: Yeah, since it was a five year mark of the tragedy, there's always these types of like anniversaries or marks, whether it be a birthday, whether it be you know the tragedy itself or another tragedy that happened in another community. Um, when mass violence happens, especially to a specific community. We're going to see like an uptick in mental health counseling right now. Um, our counseling program, we have a strong counseling program, but our appointments are booked all the way out to August. So we actually put a call out to hire two more mental health counselors um, to join our team to provide those um, crucial services. So we have seen an uptick um, typically during anniversaries or like the mark of the tragedy.
0: Indy, it strikes me that if you're translating some of this stuff, even if you're you know, you're not involved in the counseling side, like for the people who are doing the translation, they must be privy to some pretty tough and challenging conversations. So what sort of structures are there in place to make sure, you know, they can sort of work their way through it and and, and be okay with translating some of this difficult material?
5: Well, that's the beauty of working with a professional interpreter instead of bringing a relative or a neighbor to be able to interpret for you. I have seen Mm -hmm. cases in which uh, somebody brings a family member to interpret a really heavy topic and that person breaks down and starts crying just even before they're able to interpret the message because it's that heavy. But Mm -hmm. with professional interpreters, we are there to be used as tools we see ourselves as uh, almost like as a radio or as a TV. You go and you turn it on and you're not asking the TV, how are you feeling today? No, the TV just uh, spits out the information and that's it. And that's basically what we're doing. We're not there to correct the message. We're not there to add or subtract anything. We are there just to relay the information as accurately and as effectively as possible. We don't change or or alter anything. So we are used to handling any, you know, different types of content from attorney interviews, uh, attorney-client interviews, to medical appointments, to uh, anything in between, so.
0: Mm -hmm. And CCI Group has been around for about 10 years, is that right? That's correct. Orlando is it's like a fast-changing city, right? I mean, the, the demographic makeup is changing. What have you seen um, over the course of the 10 years in terms of you know, demand for interpretation services? I imagine the picture of uh, you know, the kinds of languages that you need to provide is, is probably changing a bit as well over the course of the last decade.
5: Yeah, that's correct. So, for example, we have here in, in central Florida a very strong um, Brazilian community. Uh, we also have a lot of um, Haitian Creole speakers. Uh, we have speakers of Vietnamese, um, uh, Arabic. There, there's a lot of uh, speakers in this area that speak Arabic, and as you can imagine, there's not that many interpreters that are going to be uh, so readily so readily available. Uh, at the drop of a hat, you know. So that's why when you're able to use a vendor that can pull interpreters from anywhere in the country or anywhere in the world, is such a wonderful resource. They don't have, the person doesn't have to wait for another one to come. I mean, they will have the resource 24-7 right there on the phone.
0: Do you have a lot of staff based here in Orlando as well?
5: We do have some here in Orlando mostly mm-hmm. in-person interpreters but uh all our our base of over the phone interpreters like i said it will be pretty difficult to tell you exactly where they're all located but we do have most of our in-person interpreters are in central florida
0: Mhm Joel do you i mean would you ever need to to get an interpreter in person for to help out a client at um the center
4: Yes yes that most likely will happen um, or even for special events because we do host a lot of special events um, where they're like trauma-informed events or we have this program called Relax is Just Art. So we're actually talking about conversations about doing more of those in-person events as things are opening back up more. So I see that as being um, something that's going to be useful for us um, in the near future. Uh, or sometimes we also have, because um, our case managers that work with those impacted by polls, they'll go to the family's homes um, so now, maybe if I have a family member um, that only speaks Spanish, I can assign them to someone maybe that their, that language is not their primary language, but will be a good caseworker for them, and then just tag team with CCI to make sure that you know that that interpretation is happening.
5: If there is an event, in which we can use a local interpreter, that will always be our preference because we believe in supporting the le- local economy as much as possible. So, for example, uh, all our sign language interpreters, we try to use them as close to the location as possible. Nowadays, mm-hmm. we have a new technology that we are hoping that we can start with using with the center very soon for virtual and Hybrid events. So if they have yeah. some type of presentation, we can provide simultaneous interpretation in real time. And for those kind of events, they're going to need a professional interpreter. And if if possible, we will use uh, local interpreters for those.
0: Mm-hmm. It strikes me that you know a lot of a lot of official agencies over the course of the last year and a half. They've really doubled down on communication, right? So probably the demand for interpretation services across the board is spiking. I would think.
5: Yes, absolutely, and it's so wonderful to see how local government is is now paying attention to to being able to communicate with all. Uh, with all different types of, of uh, communities. So, mm-hmm. uh, for example, their the efforts that they're putting into communicating with the deaf and hard of hearing community, I mean, nothing is perfect, nothing happens from one day to the next, but we do see the change, and I think it's with time it's going to uh, keep improving.
0: Mm-hmm. Joel, just back to a comment you made at the start of our conversation talking about the, I guess, the increase in demand from people of all different languages uh, coming to the center, even in the five years since the pulse tragedy, I'm sure you've seen quite a bit of change in the community that that you serve here in central Florida.
4: Yeah, I have seen a lot of changes. I've been in central Florida myself for 10 years. I moved to central Florida looking for like a Latinx queer community as a proud Puerto Rican myself, just looking for that community here. And I remember um, coming to central Florida and everybody was kind of in silos And I started volunteering myself for the LGBT Center just to, not for the money, but because the nonprofits, it's the way it is, but just to be connected. And I loved it so much that it got me to where I'm at now. Um, But I remember before the tragedy of the polls, I used to scream to the world, like scream to the ceiling as one of the only um, Latinx people that worked at the center at the time because we were an employee of four people. And I remember just thinking in the South, we're under-resourced for a lot of communities. And I remember individuals, and my mom doesn't know no English at all. So I've been that person that will go to her with her appointments or be that interpreter and just kind of like hustle and just make sure that she's being taken care of. But then I get busy too, right? So I can't always be there for her. Um, but I remember just like all these resources just being needed in the community, especially like for communities of color. And when Pulse happened, it exacerbated all those issues that we already knew on the ground that was happening, whether it be language justice, whether it be um, for just resources for mental health and stability and economy stability for our community. Um, So it just impacted a lot. In the last five years, we have seen a lot of growth in Central Florida. Before Pulse, you know, I didn't see myself here. I didn't see myself living in Orlando for a very long time. Um, and after Paulson, just seeing the response and the growth and the community support, uh, even though being in the South, um, it, it's home now. And, and seeing everything that's able to happen here in our community uh, moving forward. It's, you know, just recently it was named number one city for LGBTQ families. I would never have thought that, you know, 10 years ago that people are moving here um, because we're inclusive. So I've seen a lot of changes, but we still have a long way to go when it comes to equity and when it comes to ensuring that our most marginalized communities are being served properly and having the access that they deserve and what's right to them.
0: Well, I've been speaking with Joel Morales. He is the Director of Operations for the LGBT Plus Center and the Program Director of the Orlando United Assistance Center. Joel, thanks so much for joining me.
4: Thank you for having me.
0: And we've also been speaking with Indy Vega. She is the President of CCI Group. Indy, thanks so much for your time as well.
5: Thank you. This was a lot of
0: fun. And you can find a link with more details about the Centre and CCI group on our website, wmfe.org. Still to come, the tourism industry took a hammering during the pandemic with the cruise line industry shut down. Brevard County and the Space Coast had one draw card that helped through the recession, though, rocket launches. A conversation about the Space Coast tourism economy when we return. this is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. The tourism industry took a hammering during the pandemic, with the cruise line industry shut down. Cruises are coming back, and that's important to the Space Coast, but it's not the only drawcard for visitors to the area. Rocket launches draw big crowds too. WMFE space reporter Brendan Byrne spoke with Peter Cranus, Executive Director at the Space Coast Office of Tourism, about the post-pandemic tourism economy.
3: Well, Peter, thank you so much for joining us.
6: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
3: So thinking back over the past year plus, um, what kind of impact did the coronavirus pandemic have on Space Coast tourism?
6: You know, this is this is probably in a 30-year career in tourism. This has been certainly the most challenging year I've ever faced. Uh, and that's saying a lot considering I, I went through a year in Orlando where we got three hurricanes in one year. And... Uh, you know, we, we lived through, you know, terrorist attacks, uh, 9-11, uh, you know, several uh, corrections in, in the economy with recessions, major recessions, um, but nothing really came close to mirroring what occurred this past year, um, where we had a complete shutdown for several months of tourist activities, and then greatly reduced tourist activities for for the following uh 10 or 10 or 11 months um we do we do calculations based on what visitors spend when they come here and that's a very good indicator of of business Mm -hmm. we calculated that from march of uh, 20 when the pandemic began through uh february of this year which uh is when we felt like tourism pretty much had Uh, been majorly impacted, we lost $256 million in uh, tourism spending and visitor spending. So that's revenue that didn't go to hotels, didn't go to restaurants, didn't go to retail shops, um, was not, you know, was not, taxes that were not collected, you know, all of that uh, impacted us tremendously. And you could see it in the, you know, jobs. Obviously, uh, high unemployment in the early months of, of the pandemic, um, and uh, you know, so the so the impact was was felt great, greatly, and uh, a number of businesses didn't survive. Unfortunately, uh, a number of restaurants, uh, some some retailers, most of our hotels managed managed to make it through, but but there were definitely some some casualties along the way. And, uh, you know, I, like I said, I've never seen anything like this in my 30 plus years of, of work in the tourism industry. And uh, uh, I'm glad to be saying now that we are uh, getting back to business, um, but those losses will never be recuperated.
3: Can you just explain why, you know, the cruise industry is so important to the Space Coast? Right? It's not about people just coming and getting on the boat. What, what kind of other, uh, you know, drivers are there?
6: Yeah, so, so some of the um, uh, the cruise port sees about a little under two and a half million passengers annually, or at least that was the pre-pandemic number. And about 25 to 30% of those passengers opt to stay in a hotel either pre or post-cruise uh, here on the Space Coast. So, you know, if, if 25 to 30% of that market is no longer, you know, in play, uh, then, then we have to replace that with something, and uh, I think we, I think we managed to replace it with, with some business because there were people who maybe they weren't able to go on a cruise, and so instead of doing that, they decided to come to the beach instead. Uh, but I, uh, but I don't, I don't believe that that we had a complete um, replacement of that revenue that that was lost revenue that we just unfortunately couldn't um, recuperate.
3: Peter, you mentioned that the cruise industry hasn't come back in full swing yet. I think I read somewhere the end of July is when um, some of these lines will start sailing out of Port Canaveral. Um, are, are you optimistic that things will go back to the way they were? Or what's the outlook for the cruise industry and then some of that knockoff business that you talked about?
6: Yeah, well, talking about the cruise side of things first, um, you know, the ans- the short answer is yes, we believe that... That cruise business will ultimately return uh, to its uh, pre pandemic levels. Um, however, uh, it's going to take a while. Um, you know, July will be a, a period of time where they're testing um, their, their, their cruises and they're not going to be sailing with paying passengers or uh, with full capacity. Um, that probably won't really begin until August and, and into September. Um, to get back to the full, um, gamut of, of ships leaving port, that probably won't happen till this fall. Uh, and then, you know, as we go into, into next year. So, uh, you know, by 2022, we think we'll have recovery, uh, full, fully from, from that side of the business, but, uh, it's, it's just take, it's going to take some time to get there. And, uh, and hopefully there are no setbacks along the way, obviously, if, um, you know, some other variant of this uh, virus comes along and causes problems, then, you know, we may have to uh, see a, a, some revisiting of, of that. But, you know, assuming that we're moving forward from here uh, in a positive manner, uh, I think we'll be back uh, to full strength um, by 22. Um, the other areas of, of our business are doing extremely well. Our spring break, Numbers were, uh, were slightly ahead of spring break back in 2019, which was pre-pandemic. Um, I think our May uh, numbers are going to be probably one of the best May uh, months of May that we've ever had. And, and we're optimistic that the summer will be one of the best summers that we've ever had. So, you know, people are ready to travel again. Um, I saw a uh, study that was done recently, 77%. Of uh, the traveling public is willing and ready to travel again, and so that certainly is um, positive. And I think we're going to get our share of business as people come to Florida. Florida is going to be one of the top destinations in the country uh, for for people to start traveling again, and I think we'll get our share of that business. Um, but you know, uh, we we won't be firing on all cylinders. Uh, until the cruising, you know, gets back 100%. But uh, but I think we're going to replace some of that business this summer with just the fact that people can't travel uh, to other, you know, European destinations are still closed. Um, You know, some of our borders are still closed. So I think think we're going to get some of that business uh, incrementally, and that'll help us.
3: Mm -hmm. Uh, Speaking of cruises, again, Peter, um, you mentioned, you know, there might be some Setbacks due to um, you know new strains of the virus i 'm um, wondering if if you foresee or are concerned that there might be some hesitancy to cruise again just because of those things that you 've outlined and also because some of the the um, pushback the state has had with the cruise industry you know not not allowing cruise lines to uh, require these so called vaccine passports and and doing things differently than than other ports in the country is is there a concern that that might hinder that?
6: Uh, some things that the that the industry is doing as a result of what you just said, um, and I think they 're walking kind of a fine line between the CDC guidelines and um, you know the governor 's office guidelines, if you will, of not having uh, vaccine passports um, the The cruise lines are not going to require vaccine passports, but they are going to request. That that people be vaccinated, and they're they're going to adhere to the CDC uh, guidelines that would, were laid out. That ninety eight percent of the um, passengers uh, will have been vaccinated, and I think they're trying to get to one hundred percent of their uh, of their workers, their staff. So um, you know, I, they're they're having to kind of walk that fine line. I think they'll navigate around it well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things that cruise lines do very well, if you've ever um, been out at the port and seen their operations, they're extremely adept at operational um, practice, you know, so they can get those ships turned around very quickly, loaded very quickly, and um, get the passengers on board very quickly. So I think, I think all of that will, will bode well for them and, and their approach. Um, but it may take a touch longer to get going because of those things because they want to make sure operationally they're ready to handle it. So that's why July, I I really feel like July is going to be sort of a test month, if you will. And then we'll start to see a lot more, um, you know, uh, full on uh, real cruises happening uh, beginning in in August.
3: Switching gears to another important aspect of the Space Coast economy, space. Um, This past year, we had um, a very exciting year for human space flight with, you know, three human space missions taking off from the Kennedy Space Center. Talking about this return to flight for 10 years since the end of the shuttle, this wasn't the kind of welcome back that the Space Coast was expecting, was it? How how did you... No, it
6: certainly wasn't, but the timing couldn't have been much better because the first... return to human space flight from uh, from U.S. soil happened right at the end of May of last year and that was right at the same time when we were starting to reopen some of our businesses our hotels and some of the other businesses in the county and we we tracked over 200,000 people from outside the area uh, came to to watch that that launch and it, it was sort of uh If you recall, there was a scrub due to weather, and then um, a couple of days later, it actually launched. And so we actually got um, some good business that week. It was the week prior to um, the week leading up to Memorial Day weekend. And so that ended up being a pretty strong week for us because we had, you know, the first launch attempt, and then we had the second uh, launch attempt, which actually went. And uh, so that, that helped us. And then we had another, you know, uh, human space flight uh, in the fall. So, you know, uh, we we were uh, very, very pleased with that. I mean, we obviously we don't have a whole lot to say about it from the tourism side of things, but we certainly benefit from it when those Mm -hmm. things happen. And I think there's going to be a lot more of that to come.
3: Mm -hmm. Finally, Peter, seeing space launches is one thing. Actually participating in them is another Um, With companies like Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic offering the opportunity for tourists to visit space, um, is that something that could be coming to the Space Coast in the next 5, 10, 15 years? Could we actually launch from here?
6: Honestly, I think it's going to happen within the next year or two. Um, There are already um, flights scheduled with civilians on board, SpaceX for one. Has uh, has a has a flight scheduled for this fall, um, and if that date holds, uh, it'll have three um, civilians. One one being trained as a pilot. Uh, it's some you know uh, an entrepreneur who um, is a billionaire uh, and has the money to 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 pay to be on this flight. He's bringing two civilians along with him, uh, but he's going through training right now. He's a <clears throat> he's a licensed pilot. Uh, of, uh, of aircraft, and now he's learning to fly um, uh, on a, on a uh, rocket ship, which is incredible. Uh, but there's a, like you said, there are, there are other companies, Blue Origin is looking to uh, do, do a test this summer. Um, you've got, uh, Boeing is interested in getting in the business, although we don't have any dates yet for when, when their uh, project is gonna be, be available. Um, but, you, you know, you have these these companies that are coming up with some very creative um, ways to to bring civilians into uh, into the experience of, of space flight, And, um, you know, a lot of that's going to happen from the Kennedy Space Center and, and the, the launch complex out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I, I think space tourism is around the corner. I, I you know, it won't happen in droves. I don't think you'll see hundreds of people, uh, you know, uh, launching from here yet that might be down the road, but certainly, uh, you know, the ones and twos, uh, that will happen, uh, probably within the next couple of years. And, uh, I, for one, I'm very excited about the prospect. I don't, I don't think I fall in the, in the income bracket to, to have the money to do it myself right now, but if they start getting to a point where, uh, you know where it's affordable. I'd certainly have an interest uh, in something like that, and I'm sure a lot of people uh, around the country would as well.
3: Well, until that day comes, Peter, you and I can watch it from the beaches of the Space Coast. <laughs> We've been speaking with Peter Crane. He's the executive director at the Space Coast Office of Tourism. Peter, thank you so much for joining us.
0: You're very welcome. Thank
3: you. WMFE Space Reporter Brendan Byrne
0: with that interview. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Production assistance for this week's show from Brendan Byrne and from our intern, Brittany Caldwell. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Archive shows at wmfe.org slash intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.